This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So now, to help us make some sense of what's going on, especially from the tariff perspective, we turn to one of the Bloomberg rock stars, Joe Doe. He's a metals and mining reporter, has been following this very closely. He is joining us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York. So, Joe, we saw Prime Minister Trudeau at the podium taking a pretty strong stance. What do you make of it? Well, he had to, right? This is a country that is the largest exporter of aluminum to the United States. About 50% of everything we consume on aluminum is from Canada. They export about 16% of our imports, total imports to the U.S. for steel. So he has to step up and he has to make a statement that essentially the move by the president of the United States is not one that they stand for and one that they have to actually give some sort of retaliation to. Uh, I don't know if a year ago... Trudeau ever expected to have to give a speech like this. It's a great point. But here we are, and until it finally happened that Trump or uh, one of Trump's advisors came out and said the tariffs are in place, we never were certain that the tariffs would be in place for everybody. And here we are. Uh, this is the new normal. And the next step is figuring out how the markets are going to get through can, this. Can you explain, though, the markets? Because somebody was saying yeah. before we got going, saying, well, wait a minute, because um, I think there's something else being threatened about German cars coming in huh. and stuff like that. I mean, explain the steel and aluminum market, how it works, how how this news will impact global supply train, chains, right. global trade. Tell me, what's the impact? So before going to the broader the, the broader trade implications here are retaliation that goes out beyond aluminum and steel. And that's why the it's European, a trade war. It's, it's the worry of a trade war, yeah. right? That's The EU, on the grand scheme of things, in terms of aluminum and steel imports to the United States, is not a big player. But the reason we keep talking about them is because they are a huge trade partner, a huge ally. But when you pull back and you just say aluminum and steel, what's going to happen? Steel-wise, most people – importing steel is not necessarily the biggest business. Whether Whatever country you're in, you have steel production because it just makes sense to have steel mills next to right. wherever you make stuff. It's expensive to, it, to move it around. It's expensive it's to move it around, yeah. and it's so much cheaper to just right. produce it right there. Aluminum is a bit more global. It makes – it is expensive to make aluminum. For example, the Hawesville, Kentucky smelter, an hour and a half outside of Louisville in Kentucky, right, by century, uses as much power in one day to power their plant as the entire city of Louisville uses in a day. So you're talking uh, that very different from steel. So what does this mean? Well, the market is essentially saying, okay, prices to deliver aluminum are going up. The amount of money you pay to import steel goes up because of the tax being put on. And so the market's trying to figure out what that means. Fortunately, markets prepare for the worst. And what we're seeing today, at least in the aluminum market, is some sort of expectation that this would come down. That, Mm -hmm. yes, Trump would impose tariffs on Canada and Mexico and the EU, despite the fact that everybody else in the world thought this was crazy. A lot of the traders I've been talking to today said, maybe we weren't totally expecting it. 
but it, we're not taken by surprise. Right. And there is some sense, as you look at the markets, and this came up in an earlier conversation with with Joe Weisenthal and Dave Wilson, that at least there's something out there now, right? right? There's something that people can react to because you talk to investors and analysts all the time. Part of what they need is something to model. Yeah, right? it, it's it's kind of incredible if, if you're not following this day-to-day to, if, to hear these voices on the phone today and yeah. saying, well, at least we know we got tariffs now. <laughs> At least we don't have another month of trying to figure out what the Trump administration is going to do and more of the, the posturing that they're trying to show off to, whether it's Australia or Argentina or Canada or, or Europe or whoever. Am I missing something? There? Because most, a lot of folks that who, who would come in and talk with us said when it came to China, they didn't necessarily disagree with some of the things that the U.S. and President Trump specifically were pushing back on yeah, IP right. and so on and so forth. But they didn't necessarily discre- agree with the methods yeah. here. Do people agree that this is the right? It doesn't sound like it. No, I mean, the problem is that the the problem has always been China. Whether you talk to an aluminum guy or a steel guy, they tell you the overcapacity problem. The overcapacity in China is the problem. They make a lot of stuff, whatever they don't use, they send out to other markets, and that's that. The problem, though, is using a 232 is likely not the way most people wanted to go about What's it. What's a 232? Using, the, the, tra- the, the 232 the is, is yeah. the, the national security. Got it. We right. put up trade barriers, but China is, exports zero primary aluminum to the United States. Zero. Right. And so you're putting up maybe a about 1% of nothing. all of all U.S. consumption or imports are from China. Mm. So you put up these trade barriers, and who do they hurt most? Your allies. Uh, and then the question becomes, well, does that mean the Chinese will actually start dumping to other people to try to get it back into the United States? And uh, then we go down just a whole nother level that we, we do actually have to start finding out the answers to. So, Joe, who do we expect to hear from next? Obviously, Trudeau is an important voice. Big one. What are you looking out for either from countries or companies that's really going to – help set people's mind on this? I think the response is not uh, something everybody is is looking at anymore. We kind of knew Trudeau would have to say something. The EU would have to say something. And companies have all come out and said something. We want to see how this is put, how it actually goes in practice. Right. What are the costs? Mm. What is Boeing actually going to have to pay? What is Arconic going to have to start paying? What is Caterpillar going to have to start paying? And what does this mean for companies and for markets as a whole? And, and, and until we see that in practice, then, you know, th- th- we kind of sit, wait and see. Does everybody inside the Trump White House agree about this? No. It's a lot of, there's a lot of back and forth. Well, that's one of the reasons that Gary Cohn yeah. ended up leaving the White House. He stood against this. Uh, I mean, there was a story that we reported a long time ago, last year, where we pointed out kind of the first time that there was this rift inside, inside the White House. Um, and it, it seems now that that voice is a bit more together. You know, there's talk that Navarro and, and right. Wilbur Ross have right. as much power as they've ever had. It, uh, yeah. It's mind-boggling. As somebody who studied economics, this whole idea against push, the pushback against globalization and trade, uh, you learn about that pretty early. Yeah. Um, you're the best. That was a great explanation. Thank you so much. Uh, our own Joe Doe, he's Bloomberg News Metals and Mining Reporter, joining us in our New York studio. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all.
Nope, we're not going to Disney, but we are talking small caps. And if you check out small cap stocks as measured by the Russell 2000, up nearly 20% in the past year, outperforming that index. The Hodges small cap fund beating most of its peers over the past one year, returning nearly 29%. Let's get into small caps with Eric Marshall back with us in our New York studio. Director of Research and Portfolio Manager, Dallas-based Hodges Capital Management, $1.5 billion in assets under management. I feel like there's a bit of bromance going on because you guys were talking Texas. Jason grew up in Texas, and you guys have been talking about it. Love having someone in from the big D. <laughs> hey, let's talk about small caps. They've had quite a run in the past year. You guys have performed well. I'm curious if you've seen a lot of your names, Eric, kind of move up, and you've decided to maybe pare back on some of your positions, or have you been adding more? Like, what's the play right now? Well, we think small caps really are, are very interesting right now. It, when you look at investor sentiment, it's been kind of an unloved bull market in small caps. A lot of people gave up on small caps in September, October last year, rotated more into emerging market to get risk exposure in their portfolios. And so what we found here is that a lot of people abandoned them. And they look at the Russell 2000 valuation, and they compare that to the S&P 500, and it trades at a higher P multiple today. But really, when you consider that about a third of the Russell doesn't really make much money, uh, and they're not really beneficiaries of the tax reform, the other two-thirds really you can find some opportunities. So we've been rotating through some areas of the market. We found opportunities in a lot of the more cyclical areas Mm -hmm. within consumer discretionary, uh, industrials, transport, some of the regional banks. So I think it really is about a case-by-case opportunity for individual stock selection. Upbeat perspective, I'm thinking, all those names that you just mentioned, right? Kind of a play on growth. Yeah, I mean, those are the areas of the market where we see the best valuations today. It's also the area where you're probably going to get the biggest benefits from tax reform, Mm. and you also have the potential for earnings improvement this year. And I think this last earnings season, we saw that. We said had a record number of companies exceed expectations, give very good guidance. And it wasn't just all about margin improvement. There was real revenue top line beats at a lot of these companies. So those are the areas that we're looking for sustainable earnings improvement over the next couple of years. We think that there's room for some of these small caps to see estimates revised up in the second half of the year. So it's really, we're looking at everything on a case-by-case basis, almost like a private equity investor in the public market. Yeah. So, so Eric, let's talk about some of those names. One that jumped out at me was uh, Integrated Device Technology. It's a chip maker, analog chips, though, which is a sector that's seen a lot of consolidation. Um, and and you see some, some growth there and, and potentially, it sounds like, a takeout as well. Well, there, there aren't many analog semiconductor companies of their size left. There's been a lot of consolidation going on. And they're well positioned to benefit from some of the trends in automotive, where you're seeing more and more silicon content in auto and the Internet of Things, industrial Mm. applications, things outside of analog chips that go well beyond the PC and cell phones and telecommunications areas within consumer electronics that you normally think of. So there's expanding addressable markets for what they do. They also have a memory interface chip that is growing above 20%. But this is a company that not a lot of people know about. They have above average margins in their business. And eventually, we do think it could be a takeout candidate. You know a little something about the chip business, having TI right down the road or right up the road, <laughs> right, I guess, there, right. uh, there in Dallas. 
What's the deal with Brunswick? Ticker is BC. It's had a nice run. Uh, this is a boat builder, 14.5% higher this year. And I noticed that uh, a lot of boat stocks got a pop uh, on news that Polaris was picking up uh, another boat manufacturer, Boat Holdings. Yeah, kind of interesting news this week on that. You know, yeah. uh, is that did you just buy it? Uh, no, we've been in Brunswick now for about six months or so. Okay, and we it's really interesting company. It's over 150 years old. They've yeah. been investing in a lot of different things over the years. Uh, more recently, they've announced plans to spin off the exercise equipment business, so it'll be a pure marine business. And the bigger part of Brunswick's business isn't just boats; it's really outboard engines. And that's where they've been taking market share. They have about 50% of the outboard uh, market share with their Mercury line. They've been taking market share from Yamaha and Honda. And we really like that business. You also had the hurricanes last fall, Mm -hmm. which you haven't seen replacement demand yet for a lot of those engines and boats. So we think that there's some nice tailwinds in that business and uh, see the replacement cycle very favorable. And it trades at a very reasonable multiple of 12, 13 times earnings. Yeah. So looking at some of your top holdings, one that obviously jumped out at us today, given all the discussions we had just before you came into the studio, was U.S. Steel, which sort of we were talking a little bit about this before we went on the air with you. Uh, Amazing that that was a small cap not too long ago, and it's grown a little bit. Um, This is, (laughs) as I joked with you, uh, one of the great stock symbols of all time, X, uh, on the NYSE. But what's the steel play here, and what does the news of the day mean for it, you think? Well, we, we like U.S. Steel, and we also like Commercial Metals is another holding. They're uh, the largest rebar manufacturer in North America. Rebar is a good thing if you think about all the building, right, that's going yeah. on. Yeah, you you know, about it's more correlated with cement consumption than it is other huh. areas uh, like, like autos and yeah. stuff like that. Uh, but we really think that we're in a position where a lot of these U.S. steel companies have really positioned themselves as low-cost producers. And, we, you know, you think about here in the U.S., we have the cheapest scrap because we have, you know, 100 years' worth of used automobiles that other parts of the world, emerging markets, definitely don't have. We have some of the lowest energy costs in the world, and we also have growing consumption of steel. So there's a real opportunity for the domestic steel companies to take up utilization, and we think potentially – the, the trade tariffs could just be icing on the cake to allow some pricing power where we really haven't seen pricing power the last few years. Despite the fact that consumption for steel has come back, you really yeah. haven't seen that pricing power until just this year. So right. we think we're in the early innings of a very attractive cycle for the domestic steel producers to take back market share. Is this also, though, a play on expectations that the economy keeps kind of moving along, maybe not aggressively, but just kind of staying at this level? Yeah, I think so. And I think especially within areas within infrastructure, steel that's consumed in things like highway and bridges and things like that, we have a very positive outlook for. Just about 30 seconds left, Eric. One of the things, and I'm sure Carol noticed this when you said earlier, um, it's almost like a private equity play that that (laughs) you're making here. I love talking about private equity. Is that a sort of a secular change when it comes to small caps? Is that sort of a a long-term strategy, or is this just sort of of the moment? Well, I think small caps are are interesting because you can find inefficiencies in small caps where maybe – the reality of what's going on fundamentally with the company is separated from the market's perception. And when you find that reality and perception disjointed, that's where you find inefficiencies in the market. And that's, frankly, where, where we create alpha in the Hodges funds. 
Interesting stuff. Love talking names. Thank you so much. Good to see you again. Yeah, great to be here. No cowboy boots. Maybe next time. Maybe next time I'll wear my hat. Come visit (laughs) you in Dallas. Promises, promises. (laughs) Eric Marshall, Director of Research, Portfolio Manager at Hodges Capital Management. One and a half billion dollars in assets under management. Based in Dallas, in our New York studio on this Thursday. Well, we know that billionaire David Tepper is ready for some football. He bought the Carolina Panthers for $2.3 billion. That's billion with a B uh, just a couple weeks back. And because we're Bloomberg, we look at this in a slightly <laughs> different way. Uh, and we have a great story today from Ben Steverman, uh, who is one of our personal finance editors here on The Wealth Team. Uh, and he's talking about what the headline calls a wacky tax perk that David Tepper is now getting. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, so these owners of sports teams, there's a provision in the law that you can write down the assets when you buy them. So if you're a factory owner, you buy an assembly line, over time, that's going to lose value. It's going to wear out. You get to write that down, and that can offset the profits in the, in the firm. Well, teams have the same thing, even though what they have is these intangible assets like player rosters and TV deals that really don't lose value. So basically, this $2.3 billion, he, Tepper is going to be able to write that down over 15 years. That's like $150 million a year that he can use to offset any profits that the team makes. And he can also it, – it's a little complicated, but he can you also use that, it, that and carry it over to his other businesses right. and offset the profits he's making on those and basically erase tax bills that he would otherwise have. And one of the fascinating things here is that David Tepper is obviously not alone. He's part of really a, a mega trend of sorts in terms of hedge fund and private equity managers uh, and other wealthy individuals buying teams. It's not the sort of – necessarily the the families of old who are owning these teams these are pretty hardcore investors to to say the least who are very clever when it comes to the things that you are expert on you know navigating the tax code yeah and how much is it motivated by taxes I don't know, yeah. but it's definitely a factor that makes it easier for these guys to own these things because the, it gives them a little the, – these teams, you know, like they, they rarely make much of a profit, um, and the prices that they're paying for them now are, is really kind of insane. It doesn't make sense based on any kind of traditional valuation mat- metrics if you're doing like a multiple of, of you know profits or earnings or something like that. It doesn't make much sense, but the key is you get a certain tax, tax benefit, and then you hope that someone – Along, is going to come along eventually and want to pay even more than you paid. Right. And, Carol, these are not current income plays. These are right. long-term long-term investments, as Ben's saying. That's what it's about. Because it's interesting. Because when we talk about these professional sports teams, certainly something in the NFL, we, we talk about these values and how, you know, how much they are and how much they're worth and so on and so forth. But you're right. Um, so running this as a business on a year yearly basis – there's a lot of costs involved. And so it's not such a profitable business year to year. But as you said, when you ultimately sell off yeah. the team, that's when you make your money. I mean, hopefully. There's, there, there's some you know, real estate plays sometimes these guys get excited about. Um, yeah. But you know, if the team wants to bid up for some star, you're, they're going to get a call and they might have to pony up some cash. They might have to write a check. Right. Yeah. Why did you want to write about this? <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm not a huge sports fan, but I think, I think the tax stuff is, is fun. It's like interesting. It's like I told you this, this is Bloomberg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like these are like fun games these guys are playing, and you know, and, and the tax law changed it a little bit at the at the margins, and the, obviously the tax law has the new tax law has a lot of um, 
other benefits for people uh, at this in this income range, and I've been looking into those as well. Um, it's it's just a fun thing to think about yeah. when you get that rich. Is, you know, Tepper we estimate he has more than ten billion dollars in net worth. He made one point five billion dollars last year, according to one estimate. There's just so much real estate you can buy, right? And yeah, art. Yeah, there's only so much you can do with that. So they get to a point where they're like, hey, you know, like let's let's use this for something fun. Well, and one of the things, and and I've been looking at this for a while. I mean, one one of the things you see with these guys is. I mean, let's be honest. It is cool to own a sports team. I mean, this is if if you are growing up, you, this is a dream that you have is to like walk in. You are the ultimate baller, like <laughs> sitting in the owner's box, walking the sidelines, fist bumping with the players, etc. It's also a really rare commodity. I think you were getting yeah. to this, Ben, this idea that there are only and, and Carol, you alluded to it, too. There are only so many of these out there. So yeah. there's a real sort of rarity or rarity value if that's such a thing but also they're complicated businesses you you look at what josh harris and david blitzer have done with the 76ers and it's the sort of long play where they you know they're really bad for a few years and then they then they make the playoffs it's fascinating to me from a business perspective and the nfl's picky i mean they are very that's a very good particular about who gets to own their teams yeah it's a it's this very exclusive club so tepper was a minority owner he is a minority owner in the pittsburgh steelers he grew up in pittsburgh he's gonna have to divest that but i think that can sometimes be a kind of get your foot in the door yeah. that you know get to know right. some of the other right. owners and then they'll let you into the club uh he's one of the richest nfl owners there is now like he, he he'll he'll be at the top of the for list now. <laughs> for <laughs> Until now the next one comes <laughs> along right ben he's gonna have good seats too right? <laughs> <laughs> just saying ben steverman this is fun thank you so much really appreciate thank it you. he's a personal finance editor at bloomberg news joining us in our bloomberg 1130 studio All right, and now it is that time where we talk about the chart of the day with none other than Mr. David Wilson. Uh, we are talking movie pass today. Is that right? Right. That's sort of that business model, if you will. I mean, I hate to use that MBA speak. But <laughs> anyway, we're talking about businesses that are really built on you know subscribers, users, and this is something that NYU professor Oswat Demoter has been writing about on his blog the last few months. He's actually looked at Amazon Prime and Netflix and Spotify and Uber, all sort of as examples, trying to figure out how to value these companies based on their users. I mean, he's an expert in valuation. He's written four books on the subject. So this is something that he's been focusing on. And then he brought that sort of perspective to MoviePass, uh, which uh, it's the service that allows people to go see one movie a day for a mere $9.99 a month. Uh, last year, a company called Helios and Matheson Analytics agreed to buy uh, control of MoviePass. They, they took it over uh, in February of this year, and the stock's been on a real roller coaster. Here's the thing, though. Uh, with those other businesses, Amazon Prime and the like, I mean, Demodoran sees value in their approach. The uh, problem is with MoviePass, he describes it as a non-viable business model. So it just doesn't work when you figure out you know, what it costs to go to the movies, what they're actually taking in in terms of revenue, what they stand to make perhaps from selling the data they gather on their subscribers, uh, which has been uh, the uh, approach that at least has been talked about in terms of how to make money in the end. 
the, he just doesn't see it happening. And if you look at the shares of this company, uh, Helios and Matheson, the ticker is HMNY. You can see that at the moment they're trading at about 44 cents. This is a stock. If you go back just a few short months ago, I mean, it, it was trading in the 30s, mm. close to 40. So it goes to show you how the mighty have fallen. And it really comes down to this business model and, you know, that it doesn't always work. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart. The explanation goes with it. And everything I do going forward, the email address is dwilson at Bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at Bloomberg.net. Timely, especially since we're living in a a world of subscription-based services, a lot of them. Hey, Dave, thank you so much. Uh, We mentioned uh, Most Read Story, the one about David Tepper. We talked about that one. There's another one, Most Read, on the Bloomberg Terminal, among the Most Read. And this has to do with President Trump and his net worth. He's still a billionaire, so don't despair, but uh, his wealth taking a bit of a hit. Uh, Kayla Belby is financial investigations reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Um, so our president, his wealth went down a little bit? Yeah, just just a tad, just yeah. a touch. <laughs> um, yeah, he, uh, I, I mean, every year we do this. Um, we did it for the first time right around when he announced his candidacy back in June 2015. Um, and this year uh, you're seeing a, a few shakeups that are coming out net to a, a loss of $100 million with some assets up, some assets down. So he's at $2.8 billion by your estimate. So break that down for us. Where does the where does the money come from? Yeah. Uh, so so the biggest assets continue to be um, his partnership with Vornado Realty Trust and two office properties, one here in New York, 1296th Avenue, another in San Francisco, 555 California. Um, 1290 did great this year um, on a net income basis, and that's up. So is Trump's office tower at 40 Wall Street, where he owns the leasehold. Uh, assets that did not as well this year, you have his golf courses and resorts. Revenue was up and down, depending on which one you were looking at, but uh, multiples for golf courses continue to be down this year over mm-hmm. last year. And then there's Nike Town right, right down the street, um, and uh, they actually moved out. I didn't realize they had moved out. Yeah, it's been so, a while since I've been so they've moved over to Fifth Avenue proper. Okay. Uh, their new landlords are paying their old rent, though, so Trump's still making that money. But again, retail cap rates are down, and um, and we're not sure who's going to move in there. It's a huge space. It's going to need need to be somebody who wants a flagship store just off of Fifth Avenue. And then also um, net incomes down at Trump Tower itself. Uh, Occupancy is lower, net incomes lower, and taxes are up over there. So just about 30 seconds to go. Is it getting easier or harder to figure out how much the president is worth? (laughs) Uh, I I will say I think our valuation gets better every single year. Every single year, either you have more trend lines to work with than you did before or new information comes to light. it's uh, it's it feels like a rite of passage every year, but but Did, but wait, it's a rite of passage too is usually Mr. Trump calling up and saying, "Wait a minute, you got it wrong." Yes. Did we hear from his team just quickly? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, we reviewed our numbers with his team this year, um, which is something we hadn't been able to do since 2015. Did not hear from the man himself, however. And he released his tax form, and so now we know more. He, uh, well, we still no still no taxes. He releases his uh, his uh, personal financial disclosure every year, and that helps us roadmap everything help. we do. All right. Interesting stuff. And it's great, too, on the website. Caleb, thank you so much. Caleb Melby, financial investigations reporter at Bloomberg News in our New York studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? 
Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, as we head to the close of the market, uh, the Dow Industrial Average down about 1%, S&P down about half of a percent. Uh, We're going to make sense of it all with Ryan Dietrich. He is Senior Market Strategist at LPL Financial, overseeing about $650 billion. Uh, He joins us from Charlotte, North Carolina. Ryan, nice to be with you. Thank you, Jason. Glad to be here. So, still pretty bullish, even amid a little bit of uh, red today. What are you seeing out there? Well, that's right, Jason. You know, we obviously are avoiding so far the sell and may go away. You know, this is looking like the sixth consecutive year that the S&P 500 has actually been higher in May, which leads us to June. That's because we sold in January, which I feel like is the (laughs) new trend, right? Didn't it happen? Like, we kind of see that a lot. But anyway, go ahead. (laughs) You're right. The last 10 years, Carol, January is actually the weakest month on the S&P 500, but second weakest is when? It's June. So, you know, it's kind of that little bit of an appeal potentially in the summertime for for equities. But when you look under the surface, we can get into this, you know, small caps, I've I'm with you guys all year saying we like small caps. Mm-hmm. Small caps continue to go higher. We think that's a positive sign. The last time the Russell 2 made a new all-time high with the S&P 5% away from all-time high, like which just happened, was January of 2013. A really nice time for equities. And obviously, we think that small cap leadership is probably going to continue to lead uh, blue chips higher as well here in the second half of this year. So let's talk about small caps for a second. We were actually talking with a, an, another manager, another investor earlier Eric in the show. Eric Marshall, yeah, of Hodges. Eric, Eric yeah. Marshall, who was, who was also making a case for small caps. Now, he's a small cap guy, so you would expect him to make that case. But you have some, some good fundamentals uh, under underlining this. Tell us about that. Well, that's right. Clearly, the first, probably most important is tax reform, right? Small caps pay anywhere from 5 to 8% higher corporate tax rate. Lower taxes, they're going to make more money. Small caps are expected to make about 30% earnings growth this year versus S&P, we'll call it 19 20%. So definitely a lot of fundamentals there. But clearly also the U.S. dollar. Historically speaking, when the U.S. dollar goes higher, small caps outperform. Let's call it the Russell 2000, outperforms the S&P 500. So with the stronger dollar we've seen recently, we think that dollar could keep going higher a little bit here the rest of this year. And that could be another tailwind for small cap outperformance relative to large caps here. Does trade – all right, obviously, if you're talking smaller caps, maybe caps, some of these bigger global issues maybe don't impact them as much. What about trade, though, front and center uh, with tariffs being uh, put on uh, steel and aluminum with some of our major allies, U.S. allies? Ryan, how does any of this – I know you're a technical guy, but how does any of this fundamental uh, factors kind of play into your thinking about the outlook? Sure. Well, clearly, when you look at small caps, about 20% of their revenue comes from overseas mm-hmm. versus nearly double that for the large companies. So that's one another reason why small caps have kind of been the safety play, which is kind of a funny thing to call them, but the safety play recently. But you look at what's happened this year. You know, last year, gained 20% on equities. So far this year, we've had two 10% corrections. What's really neat, though, we looked at this. When you look at the last, um, since 1950, when the S&P gains 15% or more for a year, like we just did last year, so a good year. At the end of May, the S&P is only up two percent on average. That's right about where we are now. So after a good year, you can have volatility, kind of sideways correction. But when you look under the surface with small caps and technology and the NASDAQ and transports all of a sudden leading, we think those are some positive things that suggest this surprise, some rally very well can continue here. 
So what worries you in this market, Ryan? Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, our worries are similar to a lot of other people's. I mean, look at the, look at the headlines today. You know, the trade war, and it's not a trade war. I don't like it. so it's called a trade skirmish. But you know, <laughs> when we're going with the, exactly, when we're going against our allies doing some of these things. That's definitely a little worrisome. Also, just the fact, hey, this is the second longest economic cycle of growth since World War II. Nine, we're next, I guess, tomorrow, right, to June first. It'll officially be nine years um, of of growth um, during this cycle. So we are getting a little long in the tooth. Inflation potentially can be one of those worries. Oh, we're not seeing it yet. Look at today's data on the PCE. Inflation's not there yet. But, you know, the long in the tooth inflation and some trade skirmishes definitely concern us. But the underlining pinnings that have gotten us here continue to be earnings. Earnings growth continues to be strong. We'd still suggest that this bull market has, has legs left. Sounds like nothing's really keeping you up right now. Oh, I've got three kids and a wife. They tend to keep me up. But you're, <laughs> no, uh, no, but uh, you're, there's a lot of optimism. And I know we have a guest coming up in the next hour, John Dorfman, um, who's got a cautious market approach. And there are some things that he is concerned about when he looks at the market. Uh, I think specifically, let me just see what he's looking at. Uh, Fed tightening, high valuations, nine calendar up years in a row, and a controversial president. I mean, politics, again, not a technical analysis or analytical tool, but nonetheless something that impacts certainly how companies and CEOs, you know, make decisions or don't make decisions because they're not quite sure what's coming down uh, from the White House. Well, that's right. You know, just look at what happened with rate hikes just this week, right? We lost a yeah. potential whole rate hike this, this, this week because of what happened in Italy. So it kind of shows you how skittish people are. But another big concern clearly is Europe. I mean, obviously, we're seeing what's happening in Italy. But just some of the action hasn't been all that impressive in Europe for a while. Very modest earnings growth so far in the first quarter. So clearly, that's a big driver for the global economy. We still think, you know, there are better opportunities in emerging markets and in the U.S. But Europe is definitely one of those concerns. I wouldn't say it keeps us necessarily up at night, but we're definitely thinking about it, right? before we go to bed. Ryan, about 30 seconds left. Jobs Day tomorrow. What do you, how are you feeling about the, that general piece of the puzzle? Sure. Well, generally, you know, the employment picture has been positive. Obviously, we continue to see that happening. What we kind of look under the surface, maybe a little more important, is wage growth. Obviously, we haven't quite seen any much wage growth. We had that freak out in early February when we had the 2.9% wage growth. So that's maybe a little bit more important number, as long as we don't have a big miss. We don't anticipate that tomorrow. All right, we're going to leave it there. Hey, Ryan, thank you so much. Ryan Dietrich, uh, Senior Market Strategist at LPL Financial, $615 billion in assets under management. Ryan with us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 